This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Hello and welcome to the Bike Radar podcast. Brought to you from the team behind Cycling Plus, MBUK and BikeRadar.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Bike Radar podcast. Today I'm joined by Dr. Xavier Disley of UK-based brand AeroCoach, who is the aero partner for Team Quebec and NextHash, as well as a manufacturer of aero wheels and parts for kind of your TT bike, your road bike, etc. Today, we're going to preview the upcoming time trial at the Tour de France, which is stage 20. We had Dr. Xavier Disley profile the opening time trial earlier in the race, and we're going to talk about that first, but then we'll move on to discussing the profile of the next Tour de France time trial, as well as some of the tech that's going to be involved. So let's have a look at stage five, first of all. Now, I think, you know, the kind of winner of the stage was a a bit of a surprise. We, we knew from last year that Podjakar could time trial well, but I don't think anyone really expected him to beat, you know, the likes of Kung on this stage. And what, what did you think of the results, Xavier? So, yeah, I mean, it was not only the fact that he, he won it, but there was also a, a decent margin to other riders who were, who were really good as well. So 30 seconds to Wout van Aert is, is a solid margin over um, what was only a half-hour TT. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I mean, we, we've seen that he can, he can time trial, like he's performed well, even in, even in flat TTs before, um, certainly Slovenia nationals most years is, is a flat TT. So, um, and, and he's, he's done well there in the past. Um, but this one was a bit more rolling than I think a lot of the riders had expected. I would say that Stefan Kuhn getting so close to him on a course where, you know, he's got like a an 18 kilo weight penalty, more or less, um, is, is pretty decent. Um, so obviously it doesn't completely favor the lighter riders. Um, and Wout van Aert is, and, and Van der Poel are both bigger riders than someone like Vingengaard who came third. So, um, you know, it, it, it was definitely something for, for everyone, but, um, the fact that he put everyone away by nearly 20 seconds was, was, you know, it was, it was a very good performance. Yeah, it was really impressive. And, and as, as you, as you say, the kind of, uh, Wout van Aert was a, a favorite for many and, uh, you know, Casper Asgreen, always good in the TT in sixth as well. I think, you know, Matthew Van Der Poel surprised a lot of people. There was a lot of talk around the, the tech that he kind of had flown in the night before, which was interesting. You know, he, he may have had some aero coach parts that were potentially unbranded. And I don't know if you can kind of comment on that. 
If not, we can move on quickly. Or <laughs> I mean, I know the team is very motivated to keep him in yellow. So obviously they wanted to, him to have as much opportunity to do that as possible. Um, and we haven't really seen him go flat out in TTs um, before. Uh, he did a good time trial on the Tour of Britain um, uh, to a couple of years ago. Um, but then, you know, since then, like Torino, he just rolled around um, like a lot of the other riders who were just trying to get through that race. Um, Alaphilippe's one of them too. But um, but yeah, he, he wanted to keep yellow um, for fantastic reasons and it was a great story and everything. And so the team wanted to make sure they invested in uh, every opportunity they could to do that. And I think we're seeing more and more these days, people going for... Um, as, as people understand how much the tech makes a difference, um, teams are willing to go that extra mile and not just um, just just use the, the stuff that they've always used and, and kind of deal with it, but just to really go that extra little extra little step and try and optimize everything they can within the constraints that they might be um, they might be under. And I think you know maybe riders like uh, Guy Thomas and Primoz Roglic. Obviously, Roglic has since left the race and Thomas has kind of fallen out of the GC battle. I suppose they had maybe you know, slightly more disappointing performances, but I guess their injuries would have contributed to that. Yeah, absolutely. So if we, um, uh, before the start of the Stage 5 TT, knowing that the riders were going to be a little bit injured, um, it was interesting to note that if you lost, you know, let's say 5% of your power output on the day, then that would be worth about 40 seconds. Um, and if you, you know, 5% from a crash, I think is pretty reasonable and Roglic finished 44 seconds down. So I don't think that it's, you know, the, 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 the tour is such a tour time trials and grand tour time trials are so weird and, and very different compared to things like world championships, European championships and, and Olympics, where you go into it completely fresh and there's been absolutely no, uh, you know, issues or anything like that. It's almost like having to go into a time trial, having had unplanned training for the last you know, four days in the case of stage five, or, you know, right now it's going to be a couple of weeks or three weeks worth of unplanned training and where you're not in control of how hard you're going every day necessarily. Um, and so that's not what a lot of riders are used to. Um, some riders deal with that better than others. And which is why we see a lot of the time in grand tours, the GC contenders performing better in TTs towards the very end, where you look at it and you say, right, it's a time trial, it's, it's flat or it's hilly or whatever. And you think that these are the time trial specialists and they're going to do this well or, or this worse. And, uh, and, it, and it doesn't always pan out like that because the GC riders, the ones who've been protected for the race, they're the ones who've had all of the, um, the nutrition and all of the recovery technology applied to them uh, in particular. So all the resources in the team have been spent on them and keeping them fresh. And so a 5% drop in power that takes you 40 seconds, you know, 40 seconds worse or a 5% increase in power that gives you 40 second benefit can, can massively swing the impact of what happens in the final uh, week of a grand tour when you're doing a time trial. Yeah. And I, I suppose we'll, you know, we'll maybe talk about that a little bit more when we kind of come onto the preview for stage 20. But like you say, if, if, if the kind of final time trial at the end of three weeks is pan flat, you might expect someone like Stefan Kung to, to perform really well in that on paper. But, but like you say, he's then got to drag that 18 kilos across, you know, Mont Ventoux twice across every mountain stage twice. And, and that kind of energy adds up that energy expenditure adds up and this obviously then the fatigue adds up. So, and, and so that can really change the results, but it's, it's, yeah, it makes it, you know, quite, it's made, it makes it for very in, an interesting reading. And, and I, you know, I think I was a, a bit surprised by the number of kind of GC contenders up there in the top 10 for the, for the first one, you know, but, but then I guess, you know, like you say, it makes sense in that, in that way. 
Well, you've got, you know, even though there are only four stages before the stage five TT, an awful lot happened in those four stages. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, with, with crashes and, you know, like, yeah, it, it's it definitely that's the sort of thing that you'd expect to have happened after, you know, yeah, a couple of weeks worth of worth of action. Um, and so, yeah, when you look at, um, yeah, people like uh, people like Garrett Thomas and, and Roglic having, you know, subpar performances compared with what we know they've done in the past, it makes perfect sense when you see what's happened in the previous days. Right. So let's get into the meat of uh, stage 20 now, which is a 30.8 kilometer individual time trial. So obviously as stage 20, it comes the kind of day before the final stage. And obviously the final stage, whilst it has the you know, kind of criterion around Paris, it's not generally considered a kind of day for racing in the GC. So this is kind of the last opportunity to shake up the GC. Now we are recording this on Wednesday, the 14th of July. So it's a, it's a few days out, but the current GC situation, you know, it's, <laughs> I was going yeah, to say, you know, it, it looking pretty settled, but obviously this is the tour and anything can happen. But, but Tadej Pogacar is, is currently holding a kind of a five minute lead, uh, ahead of Iran, Jonas Vindegaard, Carapaz, Ben O'Connor, Kelderman, Lutsenko, you know, those those other guys are kind of grouped from around five to seven minutes. So, you know, looking at how Pogacar performed in the first time trial and how he's performed in the mountains, it, it you know, it's kind of looking like Pogacar is going to go into this race with, you know, a, a, similar, a similar lead. Um, but, you know, a podium result at the Tour de France is is still great. So there is still plenty to play for. You know, do you think this time trial will provide an opportunity for a kind of GC shakeup? Yeah, I mean, obviously we don't know what's going to happen in today's stage, uh, and also you know any of the other yeah. stuff that's, <laughs> that's going on. But um, but there's definitely that you could you could really the the, the difference currently between um, second and whatever it is second and sixth is only is less than a minute. Um, and so over a, a, a TT of, you know, nearly 31K, you can easily have a minute gain, minute loss, or if a rider's 30 seconds better, but the other rider's 30 seconds slower, that gives you a minute as well. Um, so um, absolutely, if, if, if the TT was today, then it would be all to play for and everyone would be, you know, getting terrified about losing a podium space or uh, getting excited about, or about gaining one. Um, whether or not those uh, gaps will be maintained uh, by the time we get to the TT, I don't know. But um, there'll definitely be, you know, the opportunity for someone to get on the podium. Like there's a, there always is in in the, the final stage TT. It's never done and dusted. Um, I think I could, you know, the unfortunate outcome of having a five minute lead on any other rider uh, for Bogacar at the moment would be that he just follows everyone and maintains that five minute lead and goes into the final TT and uses that safety to then put another minute into the you know the closest competitors if you can or another 30 seconds 40 seconds um which would be the sensible thing to do i suppose less exciting maybe um but uh but i, th- I, I whether or not he does that yeah i don't know um it'd be more exciting for him to you know blow up in the mountains crack end up 30 seconds ahead of the nearest competitor and then suddenly it becomes more more interesting but um but i, I doubt that'll happen i mean one thing you know I've, I've kind of talked with some of my cycling friends is we've haven't i was you know so obviously i don't want to see anyone kind of crash and lose time but you know we have always we have all said there has been a distinct lack of mechanicals amongst the gc contenders this year's tour de france so um you know, whilst I know everyone puts a lot of time and resources into this sort of thing, it, it, maybe it'd be nice to see a kind of a puncture. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
I mean, yeah, that's that's you punctures seem to be very few and far between. Um, I think that yeah, the I can't remember the latest sort of high profile puncture. Probably Ganner in the final Giro TT. Actually. Yeah, yeah, uh, that was exciting. But um, yeah, no, we don't want anyone to crash. But to have something uh, like a yeah, uh, uh, an, a, a random occurrence to shake up the race a little bit, given that there's such a lead, um, would be a little bit kind of Mario Party, but. Um, <laughs> It would be fun, I think. So let's talk about the um, the course for the for stage twenty time trial. Now, according to the Tour de France's official kind of stage image, it looks pretty flat. But we know that these, you know, that the ASO can often be a, a bit sneaky with the way they do these things. And and if we had access to the road book, maybe we'd know a bit more. And if we previewed it, maybe we'd know even more if we previewed it in uh, in real life. I mean, is it a flat time trial? I mean, most most of it is. There's a section from 15 to 21k which is lumpy. Um, it's got some really fast descents. The riders going to be hitting sort of 80k an hour um, a couple of times, and then it's got you know a series of sort of short little hills. Um, so it's the it's the it's the section when you get from uh, you start to enter Lusac and then head back out towards Saint Emilion. But the um, the last bit, which on the roadbook looks like a drag to the line isn't isn't really that draggy um so the, the 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 start is kind of slightly uphill to lusac but um and the finish is yeah slightly uphill to santa million but it's not really gonna make much of a difference it's just that kind of like yeah 6k section in the middle that's going to be um the, the lumpiest bit but overall it is very it is it is very flat so how does this how does this compare to a kind of you know obviously if time trialists in the UK might be used to drag strip dual carriageway courses you know we're talking lumpy by UK standards or mountainous by UK standards? Or <laughs> UK riders would, would probably would probably count this as a very sporting course, <laughs> I'd say. But then but then all UCI TTs are like that. Yes. Um, I mean, occasionally you get there was a there was a TT in the Vuelta one year which was just a dual carriageway TT uh, many years ago I think. I remember Sastre just cracking out, you know, 20 kilometers worth of straight road at one point, um, which would have been, you know, the delight of, a, of the UK time trial crowd. But uh, no, all the UCI TTs tend to have, you know, um, uh, actually quite like grippy road surfaces. So that the road to the sack and also that the final uh, run into Santa Million is like, it is, it is quite grippy, it's quite coarse. Um, so it's certainly not something that will, um, you know, be the, the same as like a very smooth, yeah, um, uh, nice dual carriageway road in the UK, um, and there's a few corners, but it's not really that. It's not really that dramatic. Um, the interesting thing about comparing uh, traditional British courses to the sorts of things that you that you see in um, world tour racing is that there's no traffic, obviously, um, but the um, the impact of that means that it favours the stronger riders. So in a UK TT where you have traffic, if a car passes you or a lorry passes you. Then it speeds you up quite a lot, and it'll actually speed up a rider more the more aerodynamic you are. So if you're both, if you have a big rider who's traveling at thirty miles an hour and a small rider traveling at thirty miles an hour, and a lorry goes past you, the small in the uh, sorry, a, a more aero rider, the um, the more aero rider will increase their speed more than the bigger rider. So what that means is that for UK racing, it's very much um, uh, your aerodynamic drag is much more important than. Your, your overall power output. Whereas for UCI TTs, big power wins uh, a lot of the time. You can't just be super, super aero and beat everyone. Um, you have to have the power to get out of the corners. You have to get over the rolling hills and um, and you don't have this sort of traffic suck benefit. 
Um, so there's that's that's just a little a little aside for the UK crowd, but no, I think um, that's really interesting. And I and I know that obviously there's there's, there's been some focus recently on the kind of aerodynamic benefit of say the you know the kind of camera motorbikes. I know Bert Block. Bert Blocken of uh, University of Eindhoven has done a lot of research around that and, and how the position of the motorbike can obviously reduce the drag if it's in front of you, even kind of 30 meters away. And But if it's if the TV camera is beside you, I, I believe his most recent research seems to show that that can actually slow you down. Yeah, yeah. You, 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 yeah, you want clean airflow or slightly disturbed airflow from in front of you, but um, having it to the side can be a bit of a problem. Or if you have a car, I mean, you know, in years past, you'd have cars driving right up to the back of riders to basically push that high pressure wake that the car, like the big kind of dam of air that the car is pushing through. If you get the rider into that dam of air, then, um, you know, you're you're speeding the rider up, but they've managed to, you see, I've realized that now and cracked down a little bit. <laughs> well, as the UCI but, loves to do, right? <laughs> absolutely. Yes, always, yeah. Um, so let, let's kind of go over some of the contenders then. I, I suppose, you know, the most obvious contender, given, the, you know, the first time trial and how the race has gone is uh, Tadej Pogacar. And, and, you know, I don't think too many people had him down as their favourite for the first time trial, but I would suspect that everyone will be putting their money on him. You know, again, assuming that nothing happens in the next few days, I, I, would, I would imagine everyone would be putting their money on him for this one. Yeah, I think that the most important thing was to see how he how he approaches the next few days. You'll know if he's going to do a good TT if he just sits and doesn't make crazy attacks. Maybe a couple of pushes to the line, whatever, because, you know, Tour de France. But if it's if he sits in um, and just waits and plays it safe to try and gain 30, 40 seconds under his own terms um, in the TT rather than trying to gain kind of 10, 15 seconds on mountaintop finishes by having to really, you know, drop the group and things like that, um, then he'll be a, a, a good bet for a, for a great result. Absolutely. Um, but you know, if you go through the other riders who are still in the race, you I mean, you've still got people like Stefan Kung still there. Um, that's right, isn't it? <laughs> I think, yeah, as far as I'm aware, he's still there. Yeah. And then yeah. Max Walscheid is, is, is hanging on in there. Big Max. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Spoke, spoke to him this morning. He's, uh, he's still, still clinging on. Um, and and people like you know Casper Asgreen and this um, I believe is still cracking yeah, along. Van Art yeah. as well is gonna, definitely going to be is definitely going to be up there. So I mean you can kind of look at the, um, uh, the 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 list of riders who are still in the race and you know people like Mikel Bjerg is still he's he's still sitting on the front and pushing on. But um, it would be a sort of TT that'll um, that'll suit him too. Um, but again, as we say, you know you really have no idea what's happening in the peloton when riders are having to close gaps and aren't protected. So um, we'll probably end up seeing um, the more kind of, you know, GC focused time trialists do, you know, better in comparison. Um, so, I mean, Wout van Aert isn't a GC rider, but like he's he's going to do well, I suspect. Um, I think we'll probably see Carapaz do a decent ride. Um, if you look at his result in the stage one Tour de Suisse, it was it was exceptional. I mean, it was a TT of I don't know nine kilometers in length or something. Um, and for a rider who's as small as he is, it was it was incredibly strong. Um, completely, it was like basically pan flat. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if he does a um, a decent ride to get himself further up in the GC standings. And that's something that the other GC riders are going to need to watch out for because um, him around as well. Although he'll probably do better on a, a hillier course. Um, but I think Carapaz will probably pull out of a 
pull, out, pull one out of the bag, I would suspect. Well, I think Carapaz has really worked on his time trial recently. And, um, you know, I suppose since moving from Movistar to, to Ineos, you know, I don't know the inner workings of those two teams, but traditionally Ineos, uh, you know, formerly Sky, have put a lot of effort into time trialing. And I think, you know, he has seen to, you know, from the outside at least, seem to have made a big improvement to his position. Would you say that's accurate? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you can't, for someone who has a lot less power, because he puts his power data on uh, on Strava now, um, and for someone who has a lot less power than, you know, the bigger riders, for him to perform as well as he does in um, in TTs is, is impressive. Um, so, yeah, I think that if we look at the result that he did in the um, the um, Tour de Suisse TT is the is the, the main one I'm focusing on because it was flat and it did favour the big strong riders. Kung won it. Uh, Catania I think came second, and um, Bissiger was up there too. So um, for him to do even half well in a race like that is uh, shows that his aerodynamic drag must be good enough. Um, and I think the the Vuelta TT as well um, uh, last year he did pretty well there. Um, probably better than people were expecting on the flat. Um, the flat section before the final hill um so uh so yeah i think that he's definitely um definitely one to watch compared with the other um the other gc riders i think the gc rider probably um lose sort of more than others will be um i think enric mass might struggle ben o'connor didn't do so well in stage five um but again motivated to do well probably going to be recovering better than um before um because he's been doing decently in uh, in the race and in recent recent stages, um, and then Lutsenko is is not bad at TTs anymore, so um, he'll do he'll probably do a decent ride. I yeah, think. I think Astana Premier Tech are another team who seem to have this year really stepped up in the time trials, and um, you know, I mean, at the I can't remember the might have been the Dauphiné before, but they they put. Uh, Isagire and Lutsenko on think, well, top two steps of the podium at that race of the, in the time trial. So that was an impressive performance. They've obviously been investing in it. You know, another team that we always see do well is Jumbo Visma. And as you say, Wout Van Aert, we expect him to do well. You know, Jonas Vingegaard was a surprise kind of third place finisher in the first time trial at this year's Tour de France. And he's obviously been climbing very well. He seems to be on very good form. You know, I, I, would we expect him to do well in this time trial as well? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, Jumbo have, have decided that he's a, a, a rider they want to invest in. Um, he came seventh in stage four in the Dauphiné um, and he also came uh, third in the Basque Country TT, uh, stage one TT, uh, TT there in Bilbao. Um, and like he's, he's yeah, incredibly strong rider. So um, yeah, I don't mention him, but like he'll, he's definitely going to, um, I think, it's, yeah, it's, it's tricky. Like it, it'll depend what happens because he's, he seems to be more willing to attack than maybe other riders currently. So on, you know, on paper, like rest, fully rested, if he just went into the TT on its own, I'd expect him to do incredibly well. If he burns himself out by trying to gain back some of those five minutes or get himself a bit of a buffer um, over the other riders going into the TT, then maybe he'll do a similar performance to others or a little bit worse than what he could do. But if he already has a buffer, then it won't matter. It's just that, you know, that, that kind of weighing up the options. Do you sit and wait for the final TT and hope that you can gain on the arrivals or do you have to try and nip and tuck on the way there and then still hope you do well in the final <laughs> TT? Yeah. And then I guess this is, you know, we've kind of discussed this on bikeradar.com before, like, you know, time trials of they've kind of gone out of fashion in, in the Tour de France in recent years. And, and I, and I think 
part of that is to do with with this kind of calculation that riders end up having to make, as you say, because they know the time trial is there. And so if you're a good time trialist, there's this temptation to not attack and to save your energy for the time trial. But then likewise, if you're not a bad time trialist, you think, oh, well, that person will have to attack therefore. But also they're going to be thinking, well, if I attack too much and I use up all my energy, I'm really bad at the TT and I'm going to fall apart in the time trial. So, you know, is, is there something in that in the sense that when you put a time trial at the end of the race, obviously we saw last year, it can be very, very exciting when it all kind of comes together, but it can also maybe put a kind of dampener on the stages before it because everyone knows that it can be so significant. Yeah, so you don't want to stranglehold the race. I mean, if they put like a 60K TT at the very end, I think that would be a mistake potentially. Um, but to, I think what would be nicer is if you had a, um, like a 30K TT at the end, I think is, is a good kind of length. Um, uh, but then like a, a whopping great big massive one in the middle, it would be, would be great, I think, because then you can, and, and make it like, you know, weird, stick a mountain in it, like the Tour de Suisse TT or, or whatever, um, just to make people think and, uh, and to stop the, the climbers from, you know, not trying, you know, that sort of thing. If you had a 60 K flat TT in the middle of the race, it'd just be game over. Um, but I think what would be really nice is to have like a, a an old school mountain TT in the middle to get everyone kind of to shake things up effectively. Um, but then having one at the end, if it's too long or if it's too difficult, then as you say, yeah, it might, it might well put a stranglehold in it. Um, it's probably something they struggle with each year as to, as to what to do. Um, I think when, um, when Wiggins won the tour, it was obvious that, you know, it was a good tour for him, um, in terms of the TTs. And then, um, you know, in recent years when there haven't been as many time trial kilometers, then, um, it's been more of a kind of climbing race, but, um, I mean, it is what the riders make of it, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And it, 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 there's always a balance. And, you know, I remember, you know, obviously harking back to different eras now, but, you know, we we, we no longer see the kind of 60-kilometre team time trial, <laughs> uh, which, you know, I, I kind of lament in a way. But as you say, like, it would be, especially for the weaker teams and, you know, perhaps teams with less of a kind of R&D budget these days, you know, the, the gaps could potentially be enormous. And is it fair to put a GC contender out of the race just because they, you know, uh, they ride for a smaller team? Yeah, I think that, you know, in, in years past, you've seen, I mean, I, I, I like to remember the, um, was it the 2011 uh, tour when Cad Evans um, managed to, take it off anti Schleck, like, you know, <laughs> towards the very, very end um, by like, you know, a minute and a half. And I think it was like a 45 KTT at the end. Um, and that was exciting because there was a buffer going into it. Um, and everyone did have to keep attacking and keep pushing. And it was similar with um, uh, when Carlos Sastre won the tour as well. The final TT became like, you know, doubly exciting there. Um, uh, so yeah, I, th- I yeah, I think it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's different every year, isn't it? But, yeah. I do um, remember that 2011 Tour de France and, uh, obviously, you know, things move very, very quickly, but looking back on it now, Andy Schleck's position on the time trial bike, I can picture it in my head, but it, it wasn't, it wasn't pretty. I mean, Cadell's position on the time trial bike was slightly unusual too, but, um, <laughs> yeah, that, I guess that was before the kind of. I don't know, before the aero revolution, let's say, the, most people were still riding unzipped jerseys and non-aero bikes. And yeah, it's uh, <laughs> aero, aero wasn't, hadn't quite taken off uh, back then, I suppose. Yeah, and I think that like, you know, it, it, 
I don't think we've seen, um, well, we certainly haven't seen uh, a, a Tour de France where someone has just turned up or a team has just turned up with aero, with aero hats on, as in, you know, thinking about aero more than anyone else and just completely wipe the floor with people. It's been a gradual process over the years. Um, but now even the smaller teams are, are waking up to the idea that um, it's really important. And so, um, you know, there's a lot more development and tech and thought going into these things, even from the teams that you wouldn't expect. Um, so, uh, but people t- don't shout about it. It's all very secret because what's the point in telling everyone about all the hard work you're doing behind the scenes? So, um, you you know, as a general, from the, the general public's point of view, you really won't find out about all of the hard work that's going into um, trying to improve performance in all aspects, not just um, not just aero. Although aero is is quite an easy an easy win if you can get it right because it doesn't affect anything else. You know, if you make a rider more aero and give them better better equipment or or whatever, then it's just going to make them go faster. You know, it's, there's no there's no penalty to that. No, there's no trade off. And I always think that's the you know if you can bolt on something aero like you say, change their position or a better wheel or something like that, it do, it doesn't come with a cost. You know, you don't. Have, it's not like if you if you can improve the training plan, that's great but the riders actually got to go do it mm-hmm. so <laughs> yeah yeah i mean there's an element of trying to squeeze people into you know uh uncomfortable aero positions that that'll come with a, maybe maybe a trade-off but um but certainly from an equipment point of view if you can optimize things from from that perspective then yeah as you say it's just a bolt on a bolt on extra isn't it so let's talk about that uh equipment then for the stage 20 time trial um you know, what what kind of bikes are we going to see? I guess you know the obvious answer to this. There is an obvious answer to this question, but are people going to go all in for aero on this, or will there be a kind of consideration to wait, or should there be a consideration to wait uh, for this TT? No, absolutely not. Um, you should have the most aero kit that you have that you that you can. Um, I mean, if you uh, if we model an increase in weight by uh, excuse me by one kilo, which is a lot. Um, that's only worth like a couple of watts over the course of the uh, of the course of the TT, which in terms of um, time is you know a handful of seconds. It's nothing nothing dramatic. Um, so you absolutely need to go as aero as you can. Um, and there are lots of little extra things that riders tend to do in Grand Tour TTs that you shouldn't do. So bottles on the frame, for example, unless you have a bike where the bottle is designed to actually speed the bike up, which in some cases uh, is true. Um, but not all, then you take the bottle off the bike. Um, the location of the transponder, um, the, the little, not the transponder, sorry, the, um, the telemetry device that's on the bike is quite important. So making sure you've got that in the right place, um, will save a couple of Watts and, and all of these things sound very small, but you pick up a couple of seconds here or there and suddenly you've done, you know, maybe five things that are a little bit clever and you've got 10 seconds out of it. Um, that 10 seconds is worth, you know, a fair, a fair amount. Um, I think, let me just pull up the numbers that, um, yeah, 10 seconds is worth around five watts. Um, and for some riders that, that could be them being on a, on a good day or them being on an excellent day. So you might yeah. as well have that five I mean, watts if you can, if you can get it. Talking about 10 seconds, you know, so for the first time trial, the difference between Jonas Vingegaard, who got a podium on the first time trial, finished in third place, and then Casper Askreen finished 10 seconds behind him in sixth. So it's the difference between a podium result on the day and then potentially a top 10, which, you know, it's not a stage win necessarily that in that case, but you can see that that's, that's a good, it's a good three or four places potentially that 10 seconds can get you. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and because fatigue is such an unknown factor by that point, you've really got to give yourself every chance of going as fast as you can. Um, so we will see riders there with round bottles on their bikes. Um, and it'll be the riders, hopefully that, 
aren't that bothered and just want to have a, an easy day in inverted commas um, and just roll around and within the time cut um, and they fancy a swig of drink on the on the start line. Um, but the general contenders, if you don't have a bike that's designed for an aero bottle, then you, you, you don't take it with you because the race is going to be about, you know, 35 minutes long. You don't need a drink. It's fine. Um, and, uh, and in terms of like the other equipment they're going to need, yes, all in. So deepest front wheels that they can, they can manage, you know, um, if they've got, um, and then most bikes are quite integrated these days. So you don't really have a lot of scope for, um, making huge adjustments to things like handlebars and, um, uh, and, and other components on the bike. So, um, the riders will, will have a, a good setup already or the GC riders do at least. Um, so, uh, so yeah, fast tires deep wheels and, and, and off you go. Now let's talk about fast tires because those are a hobby of mine. Um, when we say fast tires, you know, what do we, what do we really mean? Because most of the, you know, from throughout the road stages, especially, you know, a lot of the teams, they love a continental competition pro limited tubular. Now I believe that's a kind of you know, again, it's a continental tire with a latex inner tube, which saves a few watts over a butyl inner tube. But is that actually a, when we say fast tire, are we including something like that in there? Uh, so Conti Comp Pro Limited uh, is the special team only one that the, uh, the Conti provides the teams. Um, they do a Podium TT Pro Limited, um, which is a um, kind of stippled tread thing. It's, it's got a tread that's similar to the normal Podium TT, but again, it's got um, different inner tube inside. Um, the... Uh, it was interesting to see that when Carapaz did the Tour de Suisse TT, they gave him um, double deep sections. So the Tour de Suisse TT uh, was, I think, at stage seven, and it went up and down a mountain. Um, and they people would no one really knew what equipment to use, so everyone was using all sorts of different things. Um, uh, the the riders who did know what they were doing went full TT kit. Um, uh, but the but Carapaz had a TT bike, and he had double uh, double sixty mils or fifty mils. And they gave him the pro limit, uh, the Conti Comp Pro Limited, the road race tire on those wheels because they were already mounted on there. Um, but if he did had the, the podium TTs, he would have gone an awful lot faster on that stage. Um, and you know, tires can have more of a difference than wheels themselves. The the road race tire from Conti, the riders don't use it. Sorry, the teams don't use it because it's fast rolling. They use it because the grip is incredibly good. And the puncture resistance is also incredibly good too. We were discussing earlier about punctures and how you know rare they are now. Um, so from from a, a team and also a rider perspective, the riders aren't right really looking for low rolling resistance for the road stages at all. It's all about wet grip um, and, uh, and and puncture resistance. So that's why you know the Victoria Corsa G Plus um, is the you know tire of choice for. Um, a lot of the, the tubular one is a, a tire of choice for a lot of the Vittoria teams because um, the grip is really, really good. Um, it's very, it's quite slow rolling, um, but it doesn't tend to puncture that much and it's an excellent tire from that perspective. Um, for the TT, however, you, you, you throw all of those kind of things away um, and you, you really have to run the fastest thing you can as long as you know it's not going to puncture. And there isn't really a tire in the Pro Peloton that's um, from any of the sponsors that's known to be you know, particularly puncture prone um, you know, so, uh, there isn't really something that you'd say to a rider, oh, well, I wouldn't use that. I know that some people don't like a course of speed in the wet, but, um, this TT is not massively technical. It's got a few corners in it and, you know, I'm not sure whether it's going to be raining hard or not, probably not. Um, so, uh, so yeah, again, the tires really important, um, to make sure you've got the fastest tires you can for, for this particular TT. 
And I think, so so anyone who's familiar with uh, AeroCoach may know that they produce um, rolling resistance tests for for tyres. And the current leading tyre, according to you guys, is the uh, the latest VeloFlex record clincher. Now, there's been a lot of, you know, publicity around tubeless tyres recently, but um, the kind of results from, or your results for this clincher, they're pretty... Uh, pretty amazing like there's kind of five watt difference between a coarser speed and the the new VeloFlex record clincher but I don't think I've seen anyone use that in the pro peloton yet but you know what if, if someone was to say you know, swap on a set of you know record clinchers how, how much time is that potentially gaining them uh in well in the in the Tour de France TT it would get them about 10 seconds um but the but no one's used them and so um, I mean, I was actually discussing with a, the coach of a rider who's going to the Olympics uh, for the TT yesterday. Uh, and I said, have you tried Featherflex records? Because the, the, the Olympic TT, the roads are actually quite good. It's quite wide and open. Um, and he said, no, it's too late because the rider would need to ride on them and, and train on them and make sure they're happy and, and things like that. So um, purely from a kind of a brand perspective, because Velaflex hasn't been used in the pro peloton for a while, um, they have been used unbranded, um, the tubulars especially in the past. Um, so yeah, there is a tire out there that no one's going to use that would that would make people faster. The wet grip isn't isn't uh, like great, um, but in the dry it's really good. And puncture resistance isn't too bad. Um, I mean, we find that the if you look at the list of um, tires that we that we've tested. And most of the focus on the tire testing we do is racing. So it's designed for time trials, triathlons. It's not really about road racing, although we do have some kind of thicker road racing tires on the on our little chart. Um, the, 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 the fastest tires tend to be the clinches, purely because there's just less material there. Um, so with a tubeless tire, you have to construct it slightly differently. You've got to make sure it's airtight. And so you, there's, you know, bead thickness and, and casing thickness and everything. It has to be a certain, um, a certain construction. Um, and in general, uh, you know, apples to apples comparison, a lighter tire with less material on it tends to roll a little bit faster. Um, so that's why you, you see kind of, you know, clinches occupying some of the top steps. But um, but yeah, no, Velaflex record would be a, a, a fast option for these guys, uh, but but no one's going to use it. What, um, and what about kind of tire aerodynamics? You know, one of the, again, another thing that Continental, you know, this is all against UCI rules as far as I'm aware, but Continental seems to love to provide special tires to its pro teams that you can't actually buy in the shops if you're a consumer. But one of the things I've noticed is the, um, t- the kind of Continental TT tire with the tread from the old GP4002. Now, you know, I- I've seen it quoted a few times online from various people uh flow wheels is one of them and just swiss side have also commented this that that tread pattern is particularly aerodynamic you know is, is that a kind of significant thing that teams should be thinking about uh yeah i mean tire aerodynamics is really important from a from a basic perspective the width of the tire making sure that that's matched to the the wheel that you're using because some wheels reward wider tires and some wheels need a, a narrower tire um, but yeah, the tread pattern construction and also the shape of the tire too. So a, a cotton based tire, like a specialized turbo cotton or a Veloflex record or something tends to have a bit more of a rounder shape to it, um, than a tire that, that doesn't have a, um, a fabric construction where you can kind of like make it a bit more pointy. Um, we actually did wind tunnel test on the Conti 4000 versus the new Conti 5000 and also the, the Continental Grand Prix TT, 
um, the, the, the consumer TT, which is kind of like a more slick tread one. Um, and we found that at, at low yaw angles, uh, so uh, when you're traveling really fast and there's not much wind um, uh, hitting the rider, that the 4,000 was a little bit better than the 5,000. Uh, but overall, it, it was pretty similar, to be honest. Um, so Conti have yeah, got this um, special tire that they provide to teams, which is um, clincher only. Um, and you'll see, yeah, you'll see a few teams using it. Um, Francis de Jou use it with Stefan Kung, um, and then the Ineos riders use it on their uh, on their ride, uh, t- uh, team riders too. So um, yeah, it's a it's a, it's a fast tire. Uh, it's got good good aero tread pattern. Um, we've done a bit of, quite a bit of work because the when we're developing our wheel lines, um, we always start with the tire because um, you need to make sure that your wheel is going to perform well with the fast tires that are on the market. So it's a, if you design a, a component or a product or something that's designed to integrate with something else but the other thing is is slow then you're not winning so um so when we when we did that like we we spent a bit of time working on tire dynamics and it's, it's quite interesting i think um uh, Schwalbe, um although they're not in the pro peloton they've got a, quite an aero fast rolling uh tire which can be run clincher or tubeless which is the Schwalbe pro one tt um that's a that's quite a, an interesting one and i think that that kind of fills the gap that the 4000 left because it's faster than a um, Conti 5000, but it's got a good aero tread pattern. Um, and we found that that performs quite well in gusty conditions, actually. I mean, okay, we're splitting hairs, right? About tire <laughs> sure, economics but, and gusty you know, conditions. Who, but... Yeah, who cares? Like, that, that's, I think that's all the fun of it, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and, it, and, it, and it, does, it does make a difference. Yeah. I think that, um, you know, we, we, we've seen this time and time again. We do a lot of field testing and... Um, uh, as well as all of the CFD and Wintanol and Velodrome stuff, and um, and and you, it it does it does make a difference. And the reason why some of these riders are going so fast, and the reason why some people are gaining time over other riders, is because they've looked at this kind of stuff. Um, having said that, tire aerodynamics is far outweighed by rolling resistance in the vast majority of cases. So if you have a slow aero tire, so slow from an aerodynamic perspective, but it's very fast rolling. It'll 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 win over the tire that's you know got worse rolling resistance but is error. So the Conti four thousand is a good example of that. Um, the four thousand doesn't have good rolling resistance anymore. It used to be okay, but these days it's nowhere near. Um, and so even though it's one of the most error tires out there, Continental had to change the compound to improve the rolling resistance to get it up to speed again, so as to speak. Yeah, and I suppose yeah, if you were designing the perfect tire, you would you would maybe want the VeloFlex record rolling resistance with yeah like you say the kind of tread pattern from some another brand but it's uh <laughs> you know we don't i guess yeah we don't always get to make those decisions um you know you kind of make a really interesting point about teams paying attention to this and you know again i don't know how much you can kind of tell tell us about this on the record but we have seen a lot of teams using you know non-sponsor correct kit you know we've seen a quite a lot of aero coach wheels particularly the titan and you know, is that to do with just because that's a very, you know, the Titan, is, for example, is a very specialist wheel, right? There aren't many big brands that make a 100 millimeter deep wheel. You know, is, is, is it literally just because of that? Or, you know, how, why do you think we're seeing teams so willing to kind of go against sponsorship agreements at the moment and choose wheels, not just from AeroCoach, but from other brands that they're not necessarily sponsored by, you know, because presumably they're having to pay for these things. Yeah, I mean, we, so we, we sponsor Quebec, um, but everyone else who uses who might be using our stuff uh is it has to pay for it like just like a normal consumer um i think that the uh so a lot of the tech heads at the world tour teams are, are, are very switched on 
And there's there's always a battle between um, using what your sponsor provides you and wanting to have something that maybe you've 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 done your own testing and found out that it's faster. And the teams do within constraints because there's no point doing you know testing a product if you're not going to be allowed to use it. Um, but the teams do a lot of internal testing, and and the result of let's say a world tour team using a particular wheel from a particular brand that isn't their sponsor brand is not just a case of well, not always, maybe in some cases, but not always the case if they just got hold of one and decided to use it. Most of the time, there is an awful lot of background work that has gone into getting permission from the sponsor or doing testing to ensure that they know that it's the fastest thing that they can use um, and making sure the riders have done training on it, making sure that their, their tires work with it, for example, if it's a wheel. Um, so that there's loads that goes into it rather than just going on a website and pressing add to basket. Um, and I think that it's 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 a tricky one to weigh up because you need to be able to respect the sponsors and you know the sponsor is sponsoring your team because they you know believe in you and want to provide you with equipment and um you know that's why people take logos off stuff um because they they're not trying to to you know stick two fingers up at a sponsor for not providing with something that they want um but you know with time trials being so specialist and so niche it is very difficult for companies to keep up when you've got other people filling gaps. So um, yeah, I, 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 it's, it's, a, it's a tricky situation and you, know, you wouldn't want to be um, right in the middle of it, certainly if there's a, if there's a clash um, because sponsors might be very unhappy with you doing things and they're well within their rights to be because sponsor, most of the sponsor contract agreements um, mean that you have to use the stuff and that's the end of it, um, which, is, which makes life easier because you then just use the stuff and you don't worry about it so much. Um, but then suddenly it becomes a bit murky when you see two teams, one which is sponsored by, you know, the same one, and they know that the contract is slightly different because they're able to use particular equipment and um, one team has been told no. So, um, yeah, I think that um, we, okay, so we've gone through all of this stuff in the background with these teams and um, we try and help out as much as we can. Um, and if people want to use our stuff, then it's unbranded and, and we respect that and we don't talk about it um, because, it's there's, there's no point trying to create uh, uh, tension in a situation where the riders are trying to perform. The last thing you want is for the tech tech guys and the riders to um, you know be using equipment or something where it's a massive issue for um, you know the marketing person in the team and stuff like that. You want to try and smooth things over as much as possible. So, um, but but yeah, it is um, with, with the advent of aerodynamics being really important. And people understanding how important it is and people being able to do independent testing of their own, um, then uh, then yeah, you'll 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 probably start to see this sort of thing happen more and more. I mean, you know, we've the, there are teams that have done testing on stuff and have then gone back to their sponsor and have said this is faster than this, and the sponsors originally said yes and now they're saying no. So um, there's loads of stuff going on in the background. Yeah, which, um, of course, and it is difficult for sponsors as well, especially with time trials, because you know, time trial bikes are so kind of constrained by the UCI rules. And, you know, the market for UCI rules-based time trial bikes in terms of, you know, wider consumers, not just the pro teams, is phenomenally tiny. You know, if you're a time trialist here in the UK, you know, you don't have to respect UCI rules. You only have to respect CTT rules. So, you know, you're, if you buy a UCI legal time trial bike, you're not buying the kind of fastest bike that you, you know, potentially could be riding in theory. So, I, you know, we... I'm not sure what the kind of incentive is for big brands to be making UCI legal time trial bikes and UCI legal time trial equipment from a kind of selling to consumers point of view. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, 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 you've got triathlon as a market, which isn't constrained by as many regulations. Um, it does still have regulations, but they're, they're, they're pretty lax and um, similar kind of in feel to the UK time trial regulations. Um, I mean, the UK time trial market is, uh, is, is relatively small compared to triathlon and international triathlon markets. So manufacturers who are looking to go outside of the UCI scope will go to triathlon immediately and um, design and, and develop stuff for, for that market. Um, I think that the, uh, there, there's a flip side to, to that and not developing a kit is that if you're a sponsor, surely you would want the team to be riding your stuff. So there's an element of wondering whether the sponsor should be investing in this kind of thing purely from the perspective of showcasing their products um, to the market because the Tour de France is, uh, and, and the other World Tour, Grand Tours and World Championships, whatever, are the you know the, the flagship events of the cycling calendar so it's in your best interest to spend a bit in my opinion to spend a bit of r&d on making stuff that's really good rather than just saying we don't have the the exact thing that you need we're not interested in making it um sort yourself out or use the alternative that we've got which is maybe a little bit subpar but we're not going to try and develop anything for you so i think that ensuring that you've got even if it's something that's not going to be a consumer um, a consumer product at the end of the day because it's a specialist piece of UCI equipment if someone is rolling down the road on your wheels or your frame or your handlebars or whatever and it's actually your product and you know that it's the product then it, there's there's a, a certain amount of kind of validity that you add to your, your business and your marketing by that being the case rather than a rider rolling down the road with um, non-sponsor specific everything it kind of shows trust in the team and, and, and a willingness to spend on R&D even though that money might be kind of going down the drain <laughs> to a certain extent. Yeah. You, you you think of it as a marketing budget. Yes. Um, yeah. Well, yeah, I, I think it's a really interesting one. And so you've been talking for a little while now. The the one thing I also wanted to touch on, because you know, for me, this is another thing that you know I am aware is quite a big one. And Certainly, I, I've, I remember times we're going to talk about uh, skin suits and specifically the kind of race leader skin suits here. Because I remember when Wiggins won the tour, uh, there was a big fuss made about the fact that Sky wanted Wiggins to ride in their yellow skin suit and not the kind of um, Le Coq Sportif race leader skin suit. Now, I know that you know, time hasn't stood still and presumably Le Coq Sportif has developed their skin suits, but I'm sure they're still... You know, even if it's custom made for you by the race, you know, is it as good as the kind of team issue skin suits potentially, or you know, maybe it's better in some cases or worse in some cases? Is that a consideration? Yeah, I mean, you see, these days it's it's less of a problem. I mean, obviously, you don't have the choice as to whether you wear it or not. Uh, you have to, if you're in the jersey or you know, a polka dot jersey or the sprint uh, points jersey, then you, you as well, you've got to wear it. Um, the actually, it's interesting. So the Cox Sportif um, skin suit is actually pretty good uh, these days. It used to be a lot worse. Um, they've, or in recent years, they've focused focused a lot on making sure that it fits the rider, um, because as a showcase piece of equipment, you know, uh, because clothing is equipment. At the end of the day, it's important that the yellow jersey rider with the Lecoq Sportif logo doesn't riding around on a flapping flapping parachute. So, um, and and fit is very very important for a suit, and so aerodynamic penalties that might occur from a bad fitting suit, even if the suit itself is very aerodynamic, can be uh, mitigated by making uh, maybe a, a slightly worse aerodynamic suit much better fitting. So uh, so I think that, you know, 
because of the hoo-ha that's been made in the past, um, the the organisers have, have ensured that you know everyone's kind of pretty happy with it. And there's quite a bit of technology on the cockpitive suit. It's got kind of rib sections on it. Um, they started that with um, when Anna Philippe was in yellow for that TT that he crushed everyone. Twenty eighteen, uh, surprisingly, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was that was quite cool. And the, the suits, um, if you look this year, the suits uh, uh, they've they've got like a decent amount of tech on them, um, and they tend to fit well. So uh, and and riders have been performing well in those suits. So. Um, although it might not be as fast as some team suits, as you say, it might be faster than other team suits. Um, uh, that's that's probably you know almost certainly the case. Um, you, as a rider and as a team, you kind of just have to deal with it. I mean, there's nothing you can do, so you you just you just ride the suit, and it, the result is what it is. Um, is that still a big area for development then? Because I know you know when team gb on the track and team sky came in they invested a lot of money into developing skin suits and, and i remember the beijing skin suits were you know reportedly kind of squirreled away or, or burned because the uci banned them because they had a kind of plasticky fabric that didn't allow airflow through and you know and that was supposedly super super fast and that was great and obviously anything that's super fast and great the uci you know <laughs> doesn't like um so you know but with you know, with everyone kind of investing in that kind of stuff, is is it more of a level playing field now, or are there still significant differences to be had between skin suits? I think that the there's skin suits are um, different. Companies have a, have it appears to me some companies have very wildly different opinions on what is fast and what isn't. Um, and I think that because skin suits are so important, the rider is about eighty percent of the drag, and so what you cover the rider in is is, is really de- is dead important. Um, people are spending time and technology sorting it out, um, but the way that that people do testing uh, really differs from manufacturer to manufacturer. So you can devise a test. So let's say you only do wind tunnel testing on a skin suit, and that's the way that you design it, and you design your wind tunnel test uh, in a manner that that replicates a particular condition, but doesn't really go outside of that and you design a skin suit that's based on that particular protocol, then you're going to end up with something that's completely different looking and different performing to another skin suit that might be designed with more kind of field work, field testing and outdoor work in mind. So, um, and, and this is this is something that's happened, you know, in the development of loads of different products, not just suits. So you, you could say the same about wheels, you could say the same about aerodynamics of frames and helmets and, and all sorts. Which is why aero, aero road helmets, for example, they make quite a big difference, and yet there's, they, none of them look the same. You know, <laughs> yeah. They're all completely different. That's right. Yeah. Um, and so, if you look at uh, skin suits, no one—we're never going to converge on the same looking skin suit, uh, the same looking clothing for everyone, and everyone's got their own opinion on what technology works and what doesn't. So, um, I think it's exciting, and it's you know, it's, it's cool. And you'll probably what will happen in the future is you'll end up with a lot more different bespoke stuff, but also different things for different conditions. Um, so uh, you'll, end up, you'll end up with, yeah, different bits of clothing, depending on what, what conditions you're going to be um, experiencing at the time. Um, but as everything, it has diminishing returns, but, but clothing is such a big factor um, that, uh, you know, people are spending tech time on it. It's just some people, in my opinion, are getting it wrong. Uh, <laughs> and, and, uh, and we're just designing sure. stuff for the wrong kind of, the wrong kind of characteristics of, of the environment. Okay. That's great. And um, whilst I whilst I've got you here, like I wanna I wanna ask you what's gonna be make a little prediction. What's gonna be the kind of like if we look forward to the Tour de France next year, what's gonna be the next big kind of tech trend in in, in kind of time trials? Um, 
I don't know. I think, you know, that's a question that we have to, as error coach, we have to ask ourselves constantly. Um, uh, I don't have a straightaway answer I can give you. I suppose I wouldn't want to give the game away. <laughs> that's okay then. If you can't um, tell us and you there's something exciting, you'll have to, yeah, you'll find out yeah, about it on bikeradar.com first. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I think that the it, it's, it's always a constant evolution with these things. Um, a lot depends on UCI regulations. So if UCI regulations change and they leave loophole open again, then um, we'll, we'll go and fill that. Um, and UCI regs, I think, are coming up for a bit of a change uh, um, in the next probably about 12 months or so. Um, there's been some kind of workings in the background, speaking to manufacturers and stuff, and we've been chatting to the UCI about things. So um, something will happen and then that will kick things up again. Um, and I kind of I quite like that because it keeps keeps everything kind of a bit more fresh and exciting. Obviously, if you have to develop a new product every year, that would be pointless. But um, <laughs> the, having having a specified development period will be, um, you know, and, yeah. and regulations being updated kind of not every 10, you know, 10 weeks or something, but every couple of years will help to keep the industry, you know, moving forward. It's in the same way that, you know, Formula One regulations change and then everyone has to work hard to kind of um, make something that, that, that fits within the new scope of the constraints that they have. Um, so, yeah, currently... Is constant evolution as always, but um, there'll always be a, a loophole to exploit. Um, but uh, but yeah, uh, right now we're just trying to figure out getting through Tokyo, and then we'll well. <laughs> we'll carry so on. that was going to be my that was going to be the kind of the very last thing I want to touch on is do you think we'll see any of the kind of you know the, the track, especially in Tokyo, we will see a lot of interesting bikes like the the Hope HPT, uh, Argon eighteen have their kind of um, very fast looking bike for team australia but it takes a very different you know while the hope hpt is all about kind of wide going wide with the fork legs and the chain stays the argon 18 goes very narrow you know do you think we'll see these kind of advanced designs transfer across to the road at any point or are these kind of going to remain kind of the national federation budget track side of things you'll you'll definitely see trickle down uh, trickle down aerodynamics for um, for stuff like that. Um, obviously, yeah, track is track is quite nice because it allows you to make you know very high high end development, um, which has a real tangible benefit because you can measure these things a lot easier and better on the track, and the margin for victory is very very small um, with timed events in particular. Um, so yeah, there'll be there'll be trickle down technologies. Same with 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 all kind of technologies that you get, whether it's you know carbon layup and frames and. Um, and things like that. Eventually, the the lower end stuff will will get will get the benefit from that. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's another example of, of manufacturers diverging completely on on their decision on on whether to go yeah things like wide seat stays and, and whatever and, and or, or, or super narrow. Um, and it's kind of nice that we we don't have this conglomeration of everyone decides that this is what a frame should look like. I mean, there's been a bit of a you know, for a period when the UCI regulations over frames, uh, specifically TT frames, came in um, and a number of years ago, everyone designed their bikes to look like the picture in the UCI rulebook uh, with, you know, triangles in particular places and things like that. And it just became a bit of a kind of lazy exercise, whereas now people are thinking a bit more 3D about it um, and thinking a bit more outside the box, which is nice. Excellent. Well, that's a perfect place to leave it. There will be a written stage preview for the Stage 20 uh, Tour de France time trial on bikeradar.com. So make sure you read that. And thank you very much to our wonderful guest. That was, I'm sure, well, I found it very interesting. So I hope everyone else did. Um, you can, if you're interested in what AeroCoach does, you can Google AeroCoach or is it aero-coach.co.uk? Yeah, that's right. And uh, like I said, loads of 
really interesting uh, rolling resistance data, wind tunnel test data, you know, difference between, I think, round bottle, aero bottle, all of that stuff. That, that's all free. If you're interested in some fast wheels, <laughs> they also sell those. And um, yeah, really, really good resource. But thanks so much for, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. Cool. And uh, don't forget to leave us a review or leave us a comment on the article on BiteRadio.com where we post this podcast. As always, thank you very much for listening. Thank you for listening to the Bike Radar podcast. If you want any more information on what we've been talking about or more news and views on cycling, check out BikeRadar.com. Bike Radar.